0: Hi, friends. How are we doing today? I'm glad you're here. Today we continue a series called Stuff, Developing a Theology of Money and Possessions. Before we turn to the Bible, let's ask God to teach us. Can you pray with me? Lord, in these moments, we turn our attention to you. We lay aside our occupations and preoccupations. Help us listen with our ears and listen with our lives. We pray this in the name of King Jesus, whose birth we celebrate this season. Amen. Each year, retailer Neiman Marcus publishes their annual Christmas book, advertising the store's hottest items. And since the 1950s, the catalog has featured fantasy gifts for the holidays. Well, years ago, I began a tradition of sharing these gift ideas to our community each Christmas. And this is great news for you. If you have a little unfinished shopping, allow me to make a few suggestions. I've got just the thing for that special guy in your life. The guy who waxes nostalgically about his days on the gridiron, his banter in the locker room, his game-winning Hail Mary from high school. He'd get to relive the good old days during a one-day private quarterback camp with Joe Montana. Four-time Super Bowl winner, three-time Super Bowl MVP, Personal coach for a day, yes, yes, and absolutely yes. This gift entitles the recipient and three cronies to train for a day in San Francisco with the one and only Joe, Joe Cool, whose passing finesse helped establish the San Francisco 49ers as a 1980s football dynasty. The session will include quarterback fundamentals, throwing techniques and drills, plus a, day, uh, plus a review of the day's footage. You'll not just walk away with improved skills, says Montana, but a deeper understanding of the X's and O's. Give your guy a day with Joe Montana, and he'll give you X's and O's. (laughs) Purchase price includes an autographed football, which you may or may not have been able to purchase at the mall. You can make your guy's dreams come true for just $65,000. Hey, I got just what you need for your snowy, slushy winter commute to work. It's a pair of his and hers, Neiman Marcus Island cars. (laughs) Now, if these vehicles look familiar, it's because they're thoroughly modern updates of the Surrey-topped little lookers that zipped around Monaco and Nice in the 1950s and 1960s. That's where you saw them. Popular with princesses, movie stars, and moguls, these peppy little rides weigh less than a thousand pounds each, making them perfect for toting around on your yacht, like the glitterati of yesteryear. You'll note each island car comes bedecked in authentic Lily Pulitzer prints, not only for the seats and removable fabric tops, but for totes, towels, swim trunks for him, and caftan for her. Friends, you will be the envy of Salt Lake City, if you pick up a pair for just $65,000 each. That's a, this is a little high, isn't it? We'll bring it down, right size it, a little less money. See, I, I know what you've been longing for. A way to combine your love of Broadway ...with your love of baked goods. (laughs) Well, you can count on Neiman Marcus... ...to fulfill your greatest wish. Cue the curtain. This is the moment in the spotlight you deserve. A walk-on role... ...on Broadway's tastiest musical... ...Waitress featuring the music of Cerebrellas. In addition... ...to the thrills and chills... ...of appearing on a Broadway stage... ...this gift comes with... four premium show tickets... A meet and greet with the waitress cast. And a pie making lesson with the show's pie consultant. Because they have a pie consultant. (laughs) The baking tutorial alone is worth the price of $30,000. Totally worth it. Well, here's another something for the music lover in your life. How about an all expense paid head spinning trip to the 59th annual Grammy Awards? Your star treatment includes a sumptuous stay at the peninsula Beverly Hills with their famous fleet of Rolls Royces for guests. Supplied with two $1,000 Neiman Marcus gift cards, you and a guest will meet Catherine Bloom, the personal shopper to the stars, who will pull together the perfect ensembles for your big night. On Friday, you'll rub elbows with Megawatt music stars at Clive Davis's pre-Grammy gala. Come Sunday, you'll be whisked to the Staples Center where you'll get an exclusive backstage tour before you walk the red carpet with nominees, performers, and presenters Where the question on everyone's lips when they see you will be, who's that? And you won't go away empty handed. You'll leave with an autographed poster and a handmade Gibson Les Paul 59 reissue guitar. Next February, friends, you can claim your spot on the red carpet with T Swizzle for just $500,000. Now, if you were an objective observer from another culture, examining the lifestyle of Americans at Christmas time, what would you say Americans find most important about Christmas? What aspect of Christmas receives more time, attention, and money above everything else? Our contemporary concept of Christmas looks a little funny next to the manger, doesn't it? We fill our shopping carts, but Jesus was born into poverty and anonymity. That's why we're teaching this series called Stuff. Whether you have a little or a lot of it, money can rule you. So throughout the series, we're examining our relationship with money. We're considering what we think and how we feel about our income and assets to determine whether the almighty dollar has usurped the place of the Almighty God. The Bible has a lot to say about money, but as Haddon Robinson observed, for every verse in the Bible that tells us the benefits of wealth, there are ten that tell us the dangers of wealth. The week before we started this series, I emailed our friend Wayne Crace, who's taught us the last couple weeks. I simply asked Wayne, what do you think our friends at Capital need to know about money. Wayne emailed me right back with a series of warnings. His loving words of caution came from his desire to correct common misunderstandings of money. I want to share them with you now, but as I do, watch for the repeated words. Wayne wrote, don't ever think it's all yours. Don't mistake the difference between owning it and being its steward. He wrote, don't think it's evil, because it isn't. Don't think you can take it with you. Don't think of it as your security blanket in case of trouble. Regarding giving, Wayne said, don't think you can get by giving. He said, don't think giving more will give you a first-class ticket to heaven. That's a good word. However... Don't think God doesn't care how you handle it. Wayne warns, don't think it's a measure of how blessed you are or how much God loves you. He said, don't ever think God needs it because he doesn't. Look at this one. Don't ever think your gift is too small to be noticed. Or how about this? Don't forget, making money is a talent, and should be used wisely, not buried. Finally, don't have a love affair with it. And don't let the pursuit of it capture your motives and desires. Wayne responded to me so quickly, it was clear the words came off the top of his head. But they came from years of experience with disciples of Jesus who missed the Bible's message on money. When I first read his words, I couldn't help but hear the warning in the repeated word, don't, 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 don't. The other word that left off the page was think. He didn't really say anything about what we should do with our money. He only had things to say about what we think, how we feel about it. You know, how we feel about our stuff is such a big deal to God it made the top 10. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 21. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not set your desire on your neighbor's house or land, his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. As he gives us the 10th uh, commandment, it's almost as if God takes us on a tour of our neighbor's backyard. And he points different things out. See his house. See his wife. See his success. Don't covet these things. The word translated covet is the Hebrew word hamad. It means to lust, to desire, to delight in. Of course,
1: desire in itself
0: isn't bad. But what you desire and how you desire it may be. So what does sinful jealousy look like? You know, it's hard to say. Because no one seems to struggle with it. I read an article by a Roman Catholic priest. After 50 years of hearing confessions, he claims that not one person has confessed this sin. Come to think of it, I can't recall a single occasion in which someone asked me for spiritual guidance to overcome the sin of envy which must mean we either don't see it in ourselves or we don't think it's a big deal. I'm surprised we aren't more concerned about it. Most sins feel good in the moment and do their damage later. But envy makes us miserable the moment we embrace it. Why are we okay living like this? The ancient Israelites were especially sensitive to this commandment. They recognized it as a sin that led to many other sins. As it grows, envy gives birth to lust and adultery and theft and deception, even murder. The Israelites considered their life a gift, their success a gift, their land a gift. It's a driving theme of the book of Deuteronomy. We'll say more about that next week. Well, here's the point. If you, after receiving your allotment from God, were to stand on your plot of earth, but glance over at your neighbor's land, seeing he has better soil or less rocks or a happy little stream with happy little trees, and you covet what he's been given, Your jealousy is not merely a potential problem brewing between you and your neighbor. In your envy, you are actually questioning the good judgment of the Almighty God. When you covet your neighbor's stuff, you question how God made you and what God gave you. But many of us are haunted by a nagging suspicion that the grass is greener on the other side of the fence. Hey, have you noticed? Someone always has more. Or there's is newer. Or there's a shinier. So today I offer you a word of warning. My warning may sound harsher than Wayne's. Here it is. More promises peace, but tears you to pieces. More promises peace, but tears you to pieces. What do I mean by more? More is the anxious pursuit of increase. More is the ravenous race for provision because we think it will bring pleasure. We think it will bring protection. We think it will bring peace, but it doesn't bring peace. It tears us to pieces. Now I'm saying this, I'm not using pastoral hyperbole. I'm lifting this warning from the Proverbs. Proverbs 14 verse 30. A heart at peace gives life to the body but envy rots the bones. This is a powerful little verse about finding happiness in your life. A heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. So let me ask, are you looking for happiness in your neighbor's yard? Are you peeking over the fence, eyeing someone's stuff with envy? Because if you had their stuff, you'd be happy. Or maybe your jealousy goes beyond money and possessions. Are you pining for opportunities and experiences you weren't given? Maybe you've stopped appreciating your spouse. You're not giving her the respect she deserves. You're not treating him the way you should. Because if you're honest with yourself, you covet someone else's spouse and believe you deserve better. Maybe you long for the talents of others. His knack for business Her natural athleticism. Maybe you wish you had another persona. You wish you could work a crowd like him. You wish you could be the life of the party like her. Maybe you don't like your body. You could eat perfectly, work out constantly, but you'd never have the dream body she has on a diet of Dr. Pepper and Costco churros. Many of us pin our hopes and our happiness on getting something someone else has. But what if we trusted God as the giver? When we trust God with his gifts, we can finally enjoy life. When we trust God with his gifts, we can finally see all the beauty and joy and love around us. But when we constantly long for the life of our neighbor, We'll live a life of restlessness, writhing, and never-ending discontentment and unhappiness. A heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. More promises peace, but tears you to pieces. Now, we're not talking about healthy ambition. Healthy ambition is a passion to become everything God created you to be. We're not talking about healthy ambition. And hear me, setting goals isn't coveting. Hoping to one day improve your quality of life may be just fine. What we're talking about is an unhealthy discontentment that seeps into your soul and makes you miserable. It's a monster that gets hungrier as you feed it with its insatiable craving for more. John D. Rockefeller was the richest man of his time. At the turn of the century, experts estimate he was worth about $900 million. Now, that was a lot of money for 1901. I know it's not much today. (laughs) But in today's economy, he'd be worth over $200 billion. Someone once asked Rockefeller, how much money is enough? In response, he said, just a little bit more. A few weeks ago, we read First Timothy chapter 6, verse 9, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. In verses 9 and 10, Paul offers a series of violent images to give us a glimpse of the fate of a person who isn't thinking, or feeling right about stuff. Now, throughout 1 Timothy 6, Paul makes clear there's nothing wrong with wealth. There's nothing wrong with wealth. But if you set your heart on it, if the pursuit of more drives you, you won't like where it takes you. Oh, it's alluring, all right. Prosperity promises joy. Prosperity promises peace. Peace. But once it lures you close enough, you're trapped by your own insatiable desires. The word for desire that Paul uses refers to a longing, a craving, a passion. But like most addictions, you develop a tolerance. Once you experience the high, you become accustomed to the high, and you need more to get high. Luxuries become necessities, desires become demands. Ecclesiastes 5.10, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. A fourth century church bishop named Evagrius said it like this, the sea is never filled up, even though it takes in a multitude of rivers. The desire of an avaricious person cannot get its fill of riches. He doubled his wealth and wants to double it again until death puts a stop to his endless zeal. How many of us can't enjoy a vacation because of our voracious hunger for more? How many of us can't enjoy dinner at a friend's house because we're constantly comparing our lifestyles? Friends, this isn't peace. This is exhausting. But more than that, how many marriages have been devastated by a relentless desire to keep up with the Joneses? How many adult children want little to do with their parents now because their parents were too busy chasing success when they were little? How many women and men have come to the end of their lives with the depressing realization, it really wasn't worth it? We sink so much time and energy in, into the pursuit of stuff. But what do we have to show for it? More promises peace, but tears you to pieces. You know, there's another way to live. There's another way to live that brings life. There's another way to live that brings joy and peace. It's the opposite of covetousness. It's contentment. We talked about contentment earlier this year in our study of the New Testament book of Philippians. If you were here, maybe you remember the context. The Apostle Paul is writing from Rome. To his friends in Philippi, who just sent a uh, a representative of the church community with financial provision. When Paul pins that letter, he's imprisoned for his faith in Jesus. Paul experiences not only suffering, but also uncertainty. He's quite honest about it in his letter to his old friends. He can't say for sure if he'll be released or if he'll be executed. Now, anybody will tell you it's hard to be happy when you can't see what's ahead. But Paul isn't talking about happiness. Imprisonment worked differently in the days of Rome. Paul wasn't sitting in a cell eating three meals a day. Rome made prisoners responsible for their own provision. But since he couldn't work, Paul was dependent upon family or friends to help him out. In his letter, he reveals that virtually everyone has abandoned him, which means Paul often goes without now, anybody will tell you, it's hard to be happy when you don't have enough. But Paul's not talking about happiness. In the letter, Paul thanks his friends for their generosity. And he means it. But he wants them to understand his outlook, how he thinks about his present circumstances. Philippians chapter 4, verse 11. I'm not saying this because I'm in need. Now let's stop right there. Would you agree with Paul's assessment of his circumstances? If you were unfairly locked up, required to provide for yourself, but unable to provide for yourself while being deserted by the people you thought were your friends, would you describe yourself as being in need? Because I think I might. Paul says, I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content Whatever the circumstances. Now, that word content, it's a little Greek word, atarkes. Rhymes with guitar case. <laughs> contentment st- strikes many as an unhappy word. We wonder if contentment will ask us to slap a smiley face on a meager, miserable existence and call it good. We suspect contentment is going to ask us to pretend we're feasting like kings as we eat oyster crackers and drink tang. They still sell tang. We think of contentment as an unpleasant, almost painful word, but it's actually a peaceful word. Contentment is freedom from the stressful, restless urge for more. Contentment is a restful state of heart and mind in which you know in your bones, God has given you everything you need to do everything he wants you to do. Back at verse 11, I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. The readers in Philippi would have recognized that Paul is borrowing language from the Stoics. Stoicism was a school of philosophic thought popular in the culture for a few hundred years. Stoicism teaches, among other things, that the pinnacle of virtue is found when one reaches indifference to changing circumstances. The Stoics encourage their students to find the wherewithal in themselves to not allow their happiness to be contingent on their fluctuating fortunes. Now, what Paul is saying sounds similar to the Stoics But Paul's saying something radically different. Before we move on from this verse, note this. Paul wasn't born content. He learned to be content. Verse 12. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. Paul says, I've seen it all. I've been there. This overworked, underpaid, underappreciated apostle has experienced poverty and prosperity to a degree I'll probably never know. The words translated need and plenty refer not just to economic circumstances. This could be financial, relational, vocational. It could mean abundance or poverty in any aspect of life. Whatever the case, Paul says he will not allow his joy to be dictated by any external circumstance. We get caught up in the if-onlys. If only I had a new new job. If only I had a new car. If only I had a bigger house. But Paul whispers to us, verse 12, I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. This secret, whatever it is, taught Paul that circumstances are largely irrelevant. Whether poverty or wealth, whether hand-me-downs or Armani, with a prime rib or PBJ. What's his secret? Here it is, verse 13. "I can do everything through him who gives me strength." You see, the Stoic objective was self-sufficiency, but Paul's aspiration is Christ' sufficiency. This verse has become the victim of much abuse over the centuries. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. How many athletes have pumped themselves up before a game? I am going to win because I can do everything through Christ who strengthens me. Come on, some of you said that, haven't you? Well, actually, if you look carefully at the context, it means whether I win or lose, either way. I'll be okay. In fact, I'll be better than okay. Because God will give me everything I need to do, everything he wants me to do. The 2011 version of the NIV conveys the idea nicely. Verse 13, I can do all this, find contentment through him who gives me strength. I wonder how many of us need to find the strength of Christ. So we can simply find the word no. Or, or better, the word enough. Enough. More promises peace, but tears you to pieces. More isn't working. More over promises and underdelivers. More promises peace, but tears you to pieces. So we got to ask, even in the holiday season, where do we draw the line? How do we know when enough is enough? I mean, ask yourself honest questions. How much house is too much house? What kind of car is too luxurious? Can a Christian drive a Mercedes? Should Christians only drive used cars? Or maybe it's more nuanced than that. Maybe it's okay to drive a Toyota, but not a Lexus. Uh, That's the grand question everybody's asking. WWJB, what would Jesus buy? (laughs) Okay, do any of you wrestle with questions like this? When When you got a big purchase, I'm wrestling with one right now, right now. This weekend, i got to make a decision to buy or not to buy. Carpet. So we've lived in our home for over 12 years. Uh, When we bought the home, the carpet probably was a bit dodgy to begin with. But my children and perhaps my little bunny have made it a little more dodgy. And we're wondering, do we replace it or not? Now, in all the places I've lived, I've never actually needed to buy carpet. And so, I got a couple bids on this. Oh, good night, I had no idea how much carpet was. (laughs) I see that figure, and I'm thinking to myself, oh. And I'm asking some honest questions. Should we do it? Should we spend all that money. Now, on the one hand, maybe, the other day one of my twins was walking into a room where the carpet's kind of pulling up from the, the doorway and she stepped on one of the carpet tacks and was bleeding. <laughs> Suzanne says, yeah, I think we need to buy carpet. <laughs> and and, and Maybe she's right. But we don't have to. And no, I'm not going to tell my children to wear shoes around the house. The truth is, I could spend $10 on a rug to go over that. I could spend a few bucks to have someone come in and repair it. I don't have to buy carpet. In fact, can I just be frank with you? As bad as my carpet is, and it's pretty bad. Who cares? Do you realize there are people in this city who don't have a home over, there, over their head? Now that is the proper context in which I want to make this decision. Do you wrestle with things like this, or is it just me? How do you make decisions? How do you buy your children 89 Christmas gifts? Well, there are children in the city that go hungry. OK, got of quiet in here.) <laughs> but I know, I know it's possible I'm overthinking this, or thinking about it in the wrong ways, but I'll tell you, the next time I need to make a big purchase like this, I hope I continue to wrestle with it. Not because I particularly enjoy the wrestling. I just want to make sure that money's never my master. I just want to make sure that my stuff doesn't have a grip on my soul. Because these passages we've looked at over these weeks, 1 Timothy 6, Matthew chapter 6, they all convey the same thing. Money is a potent force. It, it, it acts like a god, so we treat it like a god. And I don't want to worship that God. So I pray I always consider carefully these decisions to hear me. I don't want to be jerked around by guilt. But neither do I want pleasure bossing me around. Neither do I want comfort bossing me around. Neither do I want more bossing me around. If you came looking for answers to your questions, to buy or not to buy, you're not going to get an answer from me. Wish I could, but God will show you in the wrestling. I absolutely believe it. If your heart is sincere toward Him, He'll show you in the wrestling because sometimes the answer is bye but i pray that we become the kind of people free of covetousness full of contentment and i want to pray that prayer for us right now lord In this moment, we thank you for truth, even when it's sobering. And We pray we'd find truth. We pray we'd find wisdom for the little decisions and the big decisions that come our way. I pray you'd give us eyes to see into our souls, to understand if there's any envy, any any compulsion to keep up with our neighbors, any of that comparison game we play so often. I pray you would open our eyes to see it for what it is. Help us to rightly recognize that more over-promises and underdelivers. Help us rightly recognize that more lies. And it doesn't provide the happiness it promises. Help us to think clearly about the way we think and feel about money, even in this season. And then help us to live out our lives, even our financial lives, with freedom and joy and generosity. May this become a defining characteristic of me and of our community may we individually and collectively be a kind, the, the, a kind of disciple who's just as lavish with generosity as you are so in that sense as your children we want to be like you children look like their parents and we want to look like you. Shape us from the inside out to become those kind of people. We pray this in the name of King Jesus. Amen. Let's talk about homework. And I want to base our homework off of a verse that I shared with you a little earlier. I'll share it again. Proverbs 14 verse 30. A heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. Now, what I'd like for you to do is draw your homework from this verse. We're going to start with the second half of the verse first. Here's your assignment. Carve out a little time this week and count the cost of envy. Count the cost of envy. How much has this been taking from you? Has envy prevented you from enjoying this year's Christmas party. Because when you go in that house, all you see is how big it is, how great that home is for entertaining. Wow, they have really great carpet. (laughs) Has envy robbed you of your joy as you think about what you're getting for Christmas as opposed to what he's getting for Christmas? she's getting for Christmas. Always wanted the Lexus with the big bow in my driveway. Never got one, by the way. Oh. What else is envy taken from you? Has envy prevented you from finding friendship? Here's what I mean. A lot of us throw ourselves into our careers. Envy drives us to work harder so we can get the promotion, so we can have more money, so we can work harder, so we can get the promotion, so we can have more money, so we can work harder. So you get it. And so doing, it's amazing how one of the first things to go is we've crowded out true spiritual friendship and we look around we realize i mean if we were honest with ourselves before god we don't have any friends oh we've got loads of friendly people delightful humans around us but i'm talking about true friendship a soul brother or sister Somebody who knows us intimately and can call us on our junk and help us find strength in God and help us ask honest questions about our finances and about everything. That's the kind of friendship I'm talking about. Has envy, your pursuit of more, crowded out friendship? What's envy done to your family life? If you're married, what's envy done to your marriage? Has envy, the pursuit of more, caused you to get up really, really early to go to work and stay really, really late and drag all that work with you on every vacation? What's it cost you? What's it cost your relationship with your kids? Think about it. Process it. Carve out a little time and ask God to show you what envy has cost you. Okay. Back to the verse, Proverbs fourteen thirty. The first part of the verse: A heart at peace gives life to the body. Here's your assignment: okay. Contemplate the impact of peace. What would it look like? How, what would the evidence be? What would the consequence be of you having a heart at peace? Well, maybe it's in many ways the opposite of the cost of envy. What would it be like? To walk into a friend's home and see their breathtaking grand piano and their incredible dining room, and you go out back, and their landscaping is perfect, even in the winter. But instead, you can just rejoice with those who rejoice and celebrate it because it's breathtaking, it's wonderful, and you're so glad your friend can experience that, and you're absolutely free of jealousy. what would it be like to have this heart of peace when everyone else in the world is just chasing more and sacrificing a lot for more? If you don't sacrifice so much for more, what does that free you up to do? What does that allow you to enjoy? Write it down. The Lord will show you. The Lord will show you. And so doing what what you're doing is casting a compelling vision for what your life could be. If you had that heart of peace. If you trusted Him. If you leaned on Him for His strength so that you can become and so you can experience contentment. Please stand with me. We'll also make this graphic available to you more promises peace but tears you to pieces. You can download that image as well as the image from Proverbs 14.30 from our online bulletin or from our social media accounts a little bit later this week. If you'd like to receive prayer, we'll have some people waiting here at the front ready to pray for you, make your way up and invite them to do so. Uh, Here's our prayer for all of you. No matter your income, May you find the faith to recognize less is often more. And more isn't all it's cracked up to be. May God give you the wisdom to know when to say enough is enough. And may you learn the secret of being being content by finding the strength of King Jesus who gives you everything you need to do everything he wants you to do. Thanks for being here today. Grace and peace.